You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Morning, everyone. Let me be another uh, face to welcome you. Uh, this morning to, to worship. Uh, my name is Steve King. I'm an elder here uh, at Liberty. It's my joy to, to preach to us this morning, to preach for us um, as we continue our study um, in the book of Acts. And we arrive this morning in Acts chapter 26. If you're using uh, the black hardcovered Bibles in the chairs around you, it's on page 395. Uh, we've been preaching uh, through Acts for most of this year. In the spring, we took a break for the summer, and now we're back into Acts and almost at the end. Um, and we've been seeing the, the story build in some ways, even to Acts 26, which is where we are today. And we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, there's a beautiful song uh, written and sung by Jess Ray. Uh, she's a contemporary of our time, and it's called Dimensions. Look up the song if you're interested. Um, she has some other uh, beautiful scripture-inspired uh, music as well and songs. And I want to read a few verses of this song. I won't try to sing it for us. Uh, the lyrics go this way. Your eyes have never seen, your ears have never heard. Your mind cannot conceive, your little heart can ne- will never quite learn the dimensions of my love. Wipe the tears away from your eyes. Drive the fear away from your mind. You have no idea how safe you really are. Believe what I say is true. I am coming back for you. If you only knew how soon, how soon. Where I'm going, you can't follow. Where I'm going, you can't see. If I go, then I will come back. Take you there to be with me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust the Father. Trust in me. In these words are references to multiple scriptures, 1 Corinthians 2 and Revelation 21 and John 14, and I'm sure a couple others if we would kind of dig, dig and search for more of them. Um, and in the song, there's much encouragement for a Christian, uh, needed encouragement because we still await Christ's second coming. Right? For nearly 2,000 years, Christians have been waiting for Christ to fulfill his promise that he will come again and bring his people to a place he has prepared for them. And the encouragement is needed because the last 2,000 years has been filled with a raging war between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Satan. Satan, who as Scripture tells us, is the great deceiver, the liar and the thief, the devil who prowls around like a lion seeking to kill and to destroy. Now today, notably, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And November is the month of prayer for the persecuted church. You've been aware of that if you've been following our cues and praying along with others in the church for those persecuted around the world. And as a result of that, result of that focus, uh, right now we may be more aware than other times during the year of how Christians are being persecuted around the world because of their faith in God. And how the worst of worldly persecution is being carried out against Christians. Kidnapping, enslavement, rape, murder. And so the word of God, which is timeless in its truth, is a good encouragement to us as we await Christ's return and combat the forces of Satan and of evil. And what does all of that have to do with Acts 26? 
Well, at the very least, perhaps it's obvious, right? Paul is being persecuted. Okay, truly, the Jews who have been waiting for years to kill him, not just silence him, but kill him, and, and have put him in prison, have seen him stay in prison now for more than two years because of his message, with no actual conviction and not even substantial evidence presented by his accusers. But beyond Paul being persecuted, there's also a parallel between Paul and the Jews and the Gentiles of his day and us in our day. We are awaiting Christ's return, no doubt about that. But 2,000 years ago, the people of God were waiting for the Messiah to first appear. And for any person being persecuted, and for any person enduring persecution while waiting for something, these questions apply. What is the difference between the persecutor and the persecuted? Like, what's the difference there? Why is there someone being persecuted? What is the truth that they hold to that helps them not only not to waver, but to patiently wait and to endure their persecution? How will we endure and live if faced with such persecution ourselves? Acts is the story we've been seeing this year. It's the story of the gospel message going out. And here in Acts 26, Paul presents a powerful defense of the gospel that is both instructive and encouraging for us. We have a lot to learn from Paul's defense because it shows us where the hope of the Christian is found. And it shows us how we're to live as a result of that hope. Paul is an example for us, whether in waiting or in persecution. So let's read Acts chapter 26. And before we read it, a quick catch up for anyone that would need it or benefit from it. Paul's been in prison for the last two years, right? He was first imprisoned in Jerusalem after many Jews raised many false accusations. And he was then transferred 75 miles away to Caesarea, where he argued his defense before the governors, first Felix and then Festus, the governors of Judea. And at the end of chapter 25, we saw last week, the governor Festus was visited by the Jewish king Agrippa II and his sister Bernice, with whom he was also in an incestuous relationship. Okay, so Agrippa the king, he was king over various territories throughout the region. He shows up on the scene, and he was also overseeing the temple uh, being built in Jerusalem of his great-grandfather, the original King Herod, the one who 60 years earlier, about 60 years earlier, tried to kill the infant and newborn Jesus. Paul, in his defense, and with the embrace of his right as a Roman citizen appealed to Caesar. We saw that last week. And while Festus allows for that, he has nothing to write to Caesar as to why he would send Paul to him. Right? Festus has neither the heritage nor understanding to know why Paul is being opposed and oppressed by the Jews. And he also really doesn't have any courage in either direction to either declare Paul innocent or guilty. And so when Agrippa and Bernice arrive, he shares this with them, who Paul is and why he's in prison. And Agrippa, a Jew himself who was Romanized in his education and upbringing, decides he wants to hear from Paul himself. And so with great drama and great pomp, Agrippa and Bernice arrive on the scene and Paul is standing before him. And now follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but that when they were, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, thank you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you, too, for the saints who have come before us and have given example for how to worship you. Give us wisdom to discern this scripture and to have our love for Jesus grow today. Amen. Commentator R.B. Rackham calls this defense of Paul in Acts 26 his apologia pro vita sua, which means the defense of his lifetime, the full justification of his beliefs. So what does Paul present? What is the defense he gives? What is the justification for his beliefs that he offers? How does it not only apply to us, but instruct us and help us to put our hope in God and live obedient in a world that opposes the Christian message? I want to pursue these answers by outlining Paul's defense in three parts. First, hope in the promise made by God. Second, the person of Jesus. And third, the call of a Christian. So first, hope in the promise made by God. The great courtroom drama that has been unfolding in the recent chapters does not disappoint as we hit Acts 26. As Paul stands before a king, a governor, no doubt many military leaders, as we saw last week, was inferred last week, this pomp and circumstance, and the great crowd of both Jews that are ready to take Paul and tear him apart, okay, and Romans who are eager to see a spectacle of any kind, right? Romans are always eager to see a spectacle of any kind, right? So in this ultimate and powerful defense, coming before Agrippa II, who himself reigns over the proceeding and alone can say to Paul, you have permission to speak. And Paul, unfazed and unintimidated, is satisfied to be before Agrippa, even though he's another Herod in a line of ruthless, prideful, and murderous Herods. Okay, rather than be scared, Paul compliments Agrippa's knowledge of Jewish customs and believes that he finally will be able to appreciate the strength and soundness of his argument, his defense. Right, there's a paradox here. Matt, preaching out of Acts 25 last week, uh, identified that in some ways. Israel's facade and Rome's failure, where Paul would even be seeking justice from. Here's the paradox. Herod is likely a self-obsessed madman. But Paul believes at least he'll be sensible, right, to what he has to say. There's a paradox there. And Paul certainly believes that Herod is reasonable enough to ask for patience, right, so he can outline his entire argument. And patience is needed. This is a long-form defense that Paul gives longer than other places he gives in Scripture, okay? And he begins his defense by establishing context for who he is as a Jewish man, believing that Agrippa will understand this, okay? Because the context of his identity, Paul suggests, cannot be separated from his message, And it's important that we see this reasoning too. It's impossible to approach a full appreciation of the message of Paul here in Acts 26, but even overall, unless we recall what the Jewish people themselves believed. 
Truly, whether or not you're a Christian here today who puts your faith in Christ or not, okay, an honest examination of Paul's message and beliefs must start with the historical beliefs and expectations of the nation of Israel to which Paul belonged. We can't just look back from our time and make a judgment. We must go back into the time of Paul and look backwards from there. Okay, because Paul knows Agrippa has an understanding of Jewish customs and histories, even controversies, as he refers to in verse 3, right? He paints this context with a bit of a broad brush. And because Paul outlines the big picture, it would be easy for us to miss. So we need to dig in for a moment. Okay, after establishing his own lifelong commitment, training, and living as a Pharisee, which he does elsewhere as well, and others affirm of him, even his his opposition, Paul says that he's on trial in verse 7 because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And this is where we need to dig in for a moment. And remember, what is the promise that God made to the forefathers of the Jewish people? And the answer plainly and ultimately and quickly, right, is this, an eternal and reconciled life with God, right? That promise from God was revealed by God in the Old Testament scriptures from Moses through the prophets. It was a promise to overthrow the curse of sin and death that resulted from Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. Sin entered the world via their disobedience and the nature of all men and women thereafter was corrupted and is corrupted. Adam and Eve were also cast out of the garden, unable to eat from another tree, the tree of life. And death was the curse thereafter for every person. Now the law of God given through Moses to the nation of Israel made possible the temporary and incomplete restoration between God and his chosen people, that being the nation of Israel. The temple service, sacrifices, religious and moral duties that the law outlined They were kept both in obedience to God's commands and also as the profession of faith in the promise of God that was yet to be completely fulfilled. So a both of looking back in obedience and a looking forward in expectation. And all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to this fulfilled promise to come. And every Jewish man, Paul himself included, and every Jewish woman and every child looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah the person who would restore the people of God to God himself once and for all. The Jewish people believed in that promise and they expected it to come. And this is in some ways the irony of Paul's situation, that he's on trial for preaching what the Jewish people themselves believed, right? That a Messiah would come to rescue and redeem the people of God. And that is why he can say with exclamation at the end of verse seven, and for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, right? It's as if he's to say, this is backwards. It makes no sense. I am being accused of having this hope by the only other people in the world that has received the promise of this hope. Right? He, he means to, to ridicule the irony of the situation. And that is what Paul is hoping Agrippa will see. Agrippa, a Romanized Jew, but a Jew nonetheless, is familiar with Jewish history and beliefs. He'll even know that despite the disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees regarding whether or not God God would resurrect the dead to new life, 
Okay, the majority of belief throughout history was that God could, and certainly God would, resurrect the dead. Okay, so Paul is even able to boldly add and ask in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's essentially saying, everything I've been preaching and testifying to, it's not made up. I'm not an innovator. I'm just repeating what's been said to us for thousands of years. And all of that is a summary of the promise of God. And Paul believed in that promise so much that he as a Pharisee was initially a fanatical persecutor of the followers of Jesus. He imprisoned many and sentenced to death many others who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? He was so committed to his expectation of the real Messiah, as many other Jews were, as we see in the chapters, those opposing him. So committed to the expectation of the real Messiah that he was obsessed to the point of opposing any false Messiah. Paul was sold out to the hope and the promise of God, just like any other faithful Jewish person would have been. And I wonder if at this point in his defense, if the other Jewish leaders and Pharisees and even the Sadducees who were opposed to Paul were actually inspired by what Paul was saying, right? Up to this point, they're thinking, yes, like we hold to that same promise. We hold to it so much that right now we're pursuing you, Paul, wherever you go to oppose you, imprison you, and if we get the opportunity to kill you. Right? They believed a Messiah was coming. And they're zealous for this hope and expectation. And they will not accept a counterfeit Messiah. Like the Jews then, we Christians now, although with different perspective, but we Christians now, in our worldview, we believe that separation from God is the big problem, right? I'm just, I'm just summarizing that very, very simply. Separation from God is the big problem. It's the real and objective problem for every person and for mankind as a whole. And it's not just that we're lost and cannot find God ourselves, and maybe someday we will if we keep searching. No, it's that we're separated from God because we want to be God ourselves, right? At the heart of our rebellion is, is, is what Satan tempted in Genesis 3, that we would become like God. And as a result, the problem, right, we're dead in our trespasses, in sin, as it says in Ephesians 2, right, having no hope, carrying out the desires of the flesh, being without God in the world. We believe that separation from God is the unsolvable problem of all men and women, and we're responsible for it, and we're opposed to God and under his wrath unless the Messiah would come, just like the Jews believed. Right? The Jews in Paul's day believe this. Do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do you correctly understand the problem of your heart and your nature and of this world? Are you grieved by your sin or the corruption you see all around you? Does death haunt you because you've been trying to reconcile yourself to God but found that you can't do it? Are you sold out to the hope of the promise made by God that restoration will come from God? Whether, answer, whether you answer yes or no to those questions, let's see what Paul says next, right? Because after all, to this point, the Jews are in agreement with Paul's words. So let's see why they oppose Paul and why they seek to persecute him and why they are persecuting him. 
All right, that brings us to our second point, the person of Jesus. Paul established the context, right? Asking Agrippa to patiently wait with him as he established it, right? Essentially saying, we Jews are all on the same page with what we believe about all of history to this point. The holiness and power of God who created us, the divine image we bear as men and women, and the sin nature we cannot resolve. Our distinct identity as Jewish men and women who are the uniquely called people of God, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, through whom God gave the law that makes it possible for us to know the one true God. And we're also the people through whom a Messiah will come that will completely restore eternal life and relationship to God himself. We're on the same team here because we all believe these things and we await the Messiah together. We would die for this hope. Truly I, says Paul, have put others to death because of their blasphemies against this hope. And so Paul says in verse 12, in this mindset, I journey to Damascus with responsibility and authority to condemn blasphemers of our hope and promise. Paul is sold out to his belief, and here, Paul recounts he meets Jesus. And his, con- his conversion story is amazing. Okay, he's told three times in Acts. First in Acts chapter 9 is the historical account, and then also to his opposition, first in Acts 22, and then again here in Acts 26. And Paul's meeting of Jesus is what causes the dramatic shift in his life and work, and it's the reason why he becomes persecuted. Okay, in, the, in the timeless comedy, okay, Dumb and Dumber, timeless comedy, there's a scene where the two main characters, Harry and Lloyd, are traveling to Aspen, Colorado. Okay, if you've seen the movie, you can, you, you can picture them in the van, right? Harry is sleeping, and Lloyd is driving the van, and they come to a fork in the road. If you can picture the scene, one direction is toward Aspen. That's where they're going. And the other direction is toward Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay, it's 600 miles apart from where they're headed. Lloyd is distracted and is driving. Okay, I'm thinking of the hijinks going on, okay? And he goes the wrong way, okay? He goes toward Lincoln, Nebraska. And if you've seen the movie, you, of course, know hilarity ensues as a result, okay? That exit is comical. That exit is an accident. Here, there's no accident. There's no moment for which it could be said by Paul or of Paul, oh, that's where, that's where I made a mistake, Right? Or, oh, that was an honest mistake on my part. Let me go back and fix that. I'm sorry I did that. No, instead, Paul realizes he did not make a mistake. And he purposely exits the direction in which he was going with his hope and promise and goes in a completely different direction. And he never goes back. And recognize how sold out he was to that direction he was going in. So sold out that he was willing to imprison many and condemn to death others. Sold out in this direction and then all of a sudden goes this way. And from what he says in Acts 26, we can see three reasons why. First, because he met the crucified and risen Jesus. Second, because Jesus identified himself with Christians. And third, because Jesus told him that people receive forgiveness of sins by faith in him. And so briefly on each of those three. First, he met the crucified and risen Jesus. We've seen Paul 
over and over, passionately and accurately present his qualifications and experience as a masterful Pharisee. He is by, by all accounts smart, learned, and skillful when it comes to all Jewish customs and beliefs. And earlier in his life, he was willing to imprison many, endorse the killing of others for those that disagreed with him. And as someone who persecuted Christians, he was certainly not ignorant to their claims and the claims of Jesus, even as it says in Acts 26. He was probably not an expert, right? He had some things to learn, but he, was no, he no doubt examined the record and life of Jesus and found him and all the Christian followers literally unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so picture this. Paul falls on the ground on the road to Damascus, engulfed in a great light, and hearing the somewhat rhetorical question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asks, who are you, Lord? And he hears in return, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that point forward, there is no more question of the identity of the person to whom Paul is talking. Right? There's no, Paul doesn't respond with, Jesus, I don't, I don't know anybody named Jesus, right? He doesn't say, Jesus, oh no, oh, oh, you're Jesus, oh, I'm in trouble now, right? There's none of that, right? Instead, there's a complete understanding of who is standing before Paul. It's Jesus, the man Paul believed to be dead, the man of whom it said was alive by the Christians, but Paul rejected the point of killing anyone who actually believed that. This Jesus was alive and talking to him. Before that moment, Jesus was a false Messiah, right? He was dead and buried. But at and after that moment, Jesus is alive. Paul goes in a completely different direction. The second reason for that directional change is because Jesus identified himself with Christians, right? He asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in a very real sense, Paul never persecuted Jesus, right? We have no record of Paul ever meeting or seeing Jesus in his life. It never happened. And Paul doesn't even offer like a, like a coy defense, like maybe a child would. I can think about my own children, right? Did you, did you hit your brother or sister? Well, no, I didn't. I mean, sure, I threw the thing at them that hit them, right? Like he doesn't even try to bridge the gap there to make an excuse for himself. Okay, here, Jesus identifies himself so closely with Christians that it's unmistakable to Paul that persecuting Christians is equal to persecuting Jesus. And as a result, there's no further verification of Christians needed, right? Paul had much to learn after his conversion, like I said, but the validation of Christians was given by the risen Jesus himself. And as a result, Paul once sold out to persecuting Christians because of their service to Jesus is now sold out to the message of Christians because of their service to Jesus. No questions asked. It's a completely different direction. The third reason for that directional change. Jesus told him that people receive forgiveness of sins by faith in him, that being Jesus. Remember the hope in the promise made by God in eternal and reconciled life with God. Sinful, rebellious mankind separated from God, brought back to God by the work of God through the Messiah. And here, Jesus tells 
him, Paul, that he will be sent to open the eyes of the Jews and Gentiles so that as it says in verse 18, they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is the way by which God reconciles sinful people to himself. This is why the early Christians were, were known as a group called the way, right? Maybe Paul at one point even mocked them, right? He understood what they meant by the way. He wasn't confused by that. I wonder why they call themselves the way. He knew what they were suggesting by that with that name. And he probably mocked it, but now he believes, yes, Jesus is the way. Just as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' own words have proven to be true as he speaks to Paul and says, I am the way of reconciled sinners coming before God. And so Paul at that moment knew that Jesus is the Son of God, knew he's the Messiah, he's the Redeemer. He, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the promise. And faith in Jesus, no longer submission and obedience to the law only, faith in Jesus is the way by which we're reconciled to God, by which people are reconciled to God. So Paul takes his life and his work in a completely different direction. And now there's much more that, that could be said to the Jews' opposition to the promise of God being brought to Gentiles. Okay, we've seen that be an issue throughout Acts. It's an issue even for the disciples of Christ when Jesus was walking the earth. It was an issue for Jesus himself. He was opposed because of that suggestion. Okay, Paul was attacked for this as well. Okay, but we won't spend more time on that now, but rather just focus on this very simple point. Jesus changed everything for Paul. Multiple times in our study of Acts, especially in recent weeks even, Paul has said, or others have said of Paul, that he is on trial concerning the resurrection of the dead. And don't let that distract us. Okay, this is true, of course, that there is a disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees as to whether or not God could or would resurrect people from the dead. Okay, but it's more than just an argument here of whether or not someone who was once dead would be made alive. No, Jesus met Paul and his heart, Paul's heart was made new with the promise that Jesus makes to all of his followers. Okay, it's the promise echoed in those song lyrics I read earlier. Okay, it's based on the words of Jesus himself in John 14 when he says before his crucifixion to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. That's what Jesus says. It's not, it's not a question of just whether or not any person who is dead could become alive. It's that Jesus, the Redeemer who was once dead, became alive. The risen Jesus is the foundation of our hope fulfilled, the promise of God fulfilled. And so take heart and be reminded of this today. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the risen Jesus. You are a child of God because you are a brother or a sister to the very real and risen living Jesus. And like Paul, who was once going in one direction, but after meeting Jesus went in another, let us have our lives now reflect 
our faith in Jesus. And that leads us to our third point, the call of a Christian. Jesus changed everything for Paul, and he is now completely committed to his commission as an apostle of Jesus. And not every Christian is commissioned as a missionary like Paul was. You will not leave here today with me asking you to go repeat what Paul did. Okay, after all, his ministry was a primary way by which the promise of God, the fulfillment of the promise by Jesus and the possibility of forgiveness of sins was brought to all Gentiles. Okay, we sit here even worshiping God. Most of us in the room, no doubt, are here as the result of the work done by Paul to the Gentiles that has spread throughout all of the world. In verse 16, Jesus even says to Paul, rise and stand on your feet, which Paul elsewhere interprets as rise and go. All right, essentially, Jesus' call on Paul's life is to literally go with his feet and preach the gospel to all people. And so Paul obeys this command and goes on multiple missionary journeys. And in this way, he's unparalleled in the history of Christian missions, right? Whatever missions ministry we could think we could be on as individuals or collectively as a church, we will find it really hard to even approach that of Paul. But Paul is an example nevertheless to every one of us Christians, that God's foundational call in mission is that we would, one, speak the truth about our hope in Jesus, and that we would, two, desire the salvation of others and not just their favor. Paul says in verse 22, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Again, Paul is not an innovator, right? Rather, he speaks the plain truth about the work of God. And it's in this vein that he is always referring to the resurrection, plainly. Not to provoke the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, or not even to attract the Pharisees. At least just get, get, them, get them closer. Let's get them closer to me, and then I'll, then I'll work with them from there, okay? He refers to the resurrection often and always, and he places it at the center of the gospel message because it is at the center of the gospel message. It's how Jesus changes everything, the resurrection. God calls us to speak the same truth about our hope in the risen Jesus wherever we are, including our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and throughout the culture wherever God would have us. Jesus is the Son of God, died and resurrected. He's our Redeemer. We have to speak the plain truth always and often. And Paul is an example for us in that. Paul is also an example for desiring the salvation of others and not just their favor, right? It's a fascinating exchange here at the end of this chapter, a courtroom-like scene that could rival any script or movie that's been made in the modern day. Festus, the Roman governor, unfamiliar with Jewish tradition, okay, is perhaps getting embarrassed for himself, okay? He's not knowing what Paul was talking about, all right? And maybe he's concerned that he's wasting Agrippa's time. He's feeling embarrassed as if Agrippa's going to be mad at him because all he hears, okay, is Paul talking about a dead man who's now supposedly alive, right? He has no idea what's going on. He's starting to feel embarrassed maybe, and he interjects and just says like, Paul, you're out of your mind, right? He's just trying to like earn the moment back. But Paul calmly disagrees, and then with bold freedom addresses the king, Agrippa, directly, even assuming Agrippa's answer, right? He says to him, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And the crowd at this moment must have gasped, 
right? I mean, has anyone ever dared speak to the king with such a straightforward question, even assuming what is on the king's mind and not imploring the king that he would bless him with whatever's on his mind, right? He assumes the answer. So Agrippa is putting in a very awkward position, right? Perhaps he's even offended. We don't know if he's offended, but it's a very awkward position he finds himself in because he can agree with Paul, but if he does so, well, he angers a lot of Jews and he also confuses Festus and other Romans and perhaps appears out of his mind as well, right? Festus thinks Paul's out of his mind. If Agrippa agrees, Festus goes, wait, you're out, wait, you're out of your mind, right? So he can't do that and he can't disagree or he can disagree with Paul and risk too much offense with still the Jews by ignoring their historical beliefs. After all, Paul is smart and he's accurately describing Jewish tradition. So maybe Agrippa feels outmatched in his knowledge of Jewish history, or at the very least, he's unprepared to kind of go into a nuanced discussion with Paul, back and forth argument. So it's an awkward position he finds himself in as king. And so he diverts the question, right? He just diverts it to distract and says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian in such a short period of time? And Paul here responds to that clever response, okay? Not just trying to earn favor. He's not feeling embarrassed himself. He's unfazed, right? He really believed what he was saying. And securing favor with Agrippa or anybody else that surrounded him and was listening, that was not his concern. Right? He made no attempt to align himself with authorities or to appease anybody with his answer. Instead, he says plainly that he wishes all persons, those of low standing and those of high standing, regardless of time, to be like him, except for the chains he's wearing. Right? And that's this, how to be like him, to have faith in and also the reception of an eternal and reconciled relationship with God by faith in Jesus, who was himself the fulfillment of the promise made by God. And that's an example to us, an example of how we should live because of what our faith in Jesus does for our standing before God. If you're here and you have faith in Christ, see the example of Paul that we would speak the truth about Jesus at all times, of how Jesus is the fulfillment of our hope, both for this life and for the eternal life that is to come. Let us seek to also have all persons, regardless of status, regardless of our favor with them, to receive the same faith we've received. That should be the greatest longing that we have for anybody we come in contact with in our lives. If you're here and you do not have faith, hear Paul's confession before Agrippa as a message to you. I said earlier, there's a raging war between the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan in this world. Satan lies about the love of God for you, telling you that you're too far gone in your sin to be worthy of love. And he lies, Satan lies about the need for the cross, for atonement, for reconciliation between God and mankind, saying instead that as long as any one of us is good enough, it'll all just kind of work out in the end. And Satan tries to steal your joy by corrupting the divinity and the person of Jesus and removing your faith in him as a sufficient Messiah. That's what the Jews opposing Paul believed. He's not a sufficient Messiah. 
But Christ is sufficient. Satan also seeks to devour you with what 1 John calls the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do not be consumed by the lies of Satan. Turn instead to Jesus, the risen Jesus, who said to his disciples before his crucifixion in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. God has made a promise to his people, to all of us, that he will give to us an eternal and reconciled relationship with him. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul's defense of a lifetime, defense of his lifetime, is the truth about Jesus. And it changed his life. May his example encourage all of us. May our defense be about the truth of the promise of God fulfilled. And may we live in obedience and long for others to know the risen Jesus as well. Amen. Please bow your heads. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. You fulfill every promise you make, and you have not left us alone in this world. Soften our hearts to not trust in ourselves, but to instead trust in Jesus. Jesus is the Redeemer, the Messiah you promised long ago to your people and gave to all people. He is the risen and living Son sent to reconcile us to you. Let that be our joy and our hope. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.